0: Hello, everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you.
1: Our Common Ground pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages. On March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not.
0: There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love.
1: So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with, he's just not that into you?
0: A hundred (laughs) percent, yeah. Oh my
1: God, I'm there.
0: (laughs) So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 2, The Scar Harry lay flat on his back, breathing hard as though he had been running. He had awoken from a vivid dream, with his hands pressed over his face. The old scar on his forehead, which was shaped like a bolt of lightning, was burning beneath his fingers. I'm Casper Kyle,
1: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we start the show, I'm very excited because I've never been to Georgia, and we're going for our Atlanta Live show next month.
1: Yeah, and Georgia's amazing. For two main reasons.
0: Hoop skirts.
1: (laughs) Those are neither of the reasons. One, my friend Amy lives there, and peach pie. Is it good? It's so good. I always think of
0: peaches like messy. Oh my god! I'm
1: like, peach pie might be one of my favorite foods. Peach pie with whipped cream.
0: Ooh, that does sound good. <laughs> it's
1: so good. And no one does it like Georgia.
0: We'll be in town on the 8th of November. Show is starting at 730 at Park Avenue Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia. We'd love to see you there. This is probably going to be our only live show in the South for a little while, certainly for the rest of the year. So if you're in Tennessee or if you're in South Carolina or in Alabama, come up and see us. We'd love to say hello and for those of you who are joining us at the live show in Somerville on Wednesday this week, we're really looking forward to seeing you.
1: We'll see you soon. Do you know what you're wearing? Uh, the hoops <laughs> cut. Okay. I don't want us to be matchy. <laughs> so Casper, as established on the show before, I went to this very posh middle school and high school in Brentwood, California, but I lived in Northridge, California, which is about 13 miles away and sometimes I would say that distance felt bigger than others. Sometimes that was dependent on traffic flow in the time of day. It could be a 22-minute drive when there wasn't traffic, and it could be an hour-and-a-half drive in the mornings to get to school, for example. But one moment when that distance felt huge was when in January of 1994, I was in the seventh grade. My brother was in the ninth grade. And there was the Northridge earthquake in our hometown. And it was a 6.7 earthquake. Nearly 70 people died. I mean, it was just absolute chaos and destruction. And the locus of that destruction psychologically for me was at my grandparents' house. They lived right where the epicenter was and we had been at their house for Shabbat dinner Friday night and everything was terrific and then Sunday afternoon after the earthquake happened we went back over my grandmother had broken her leg and there were like no ambulances and the phone lines were down so you couldn't call an ambulance and I mean it was just absolute chaos and we walked in and I had such a clear feeling of what this house was supposed to look like. And the refrigerator was on the opposite side of the kitchen from where it belonged. I mean, like the world was just upside down. And so all day Sunday and all day Monday, we were there like literally sweeping up walls, right? Just like cleaning up the shambles of my mother's childhood home and to a large extent like my childhood home. And we went home to our house, which was very close to my grandparents, and the phones in our neighborhood had been turned back on while we were at my grandparents. And there was an answering machine message from my school saying that my older brother and I had missed our Latin final. And I just remember my family standing there being like, wait, what? We had spent all day trying to get my grandmother to a hospital and like, cleaning up what felt like a war invasion and the idea that only 13 miles away school had happened as usual and not only had finals taken place but it was just expected that everybody was going to be able to attend and that is when it occurred to me just like how Local destruction can feel. I mean, we lived very close to my grandparents, and the destruction at their house versus our house was different. And the difference in destruction between Northridge and Brentwood was unimaginable. Like, we in Northridge could not imagine that school would be going on as usual, and Brentwood couldn't imagine that there was like a reasonable circumstance <laughs> by which we had missed our Latin finals. And I feel like we really see that in this chapter. How isolating destruction is and how personal it can feel harry has just ostensibly witnessed a murder and learned about another murder and he is totally alone in that even though there are three family members that he has in the same building as him he can't talk to anybody about it he's entirely alone even though he has just witnessed this catastrophe And so I'm interested in that aspect of destruction. I think there are a lot of other ones in this chapter, but as to just the utter arbitrariness of destruction, of who feels it, how and why, and then just how deeply, deeply isolating it can be.
0: I'm so struck by that, Vanessa. I I don't think I'd really thought about the impact of localization around destruction and how that causes a whole new layer of suffering because you can't actually communicate the experience of what's happened you know in the last month or two we've looked at puerto rico in the same way you know 3.5 million u.s citizens who were without power you know total destruction in various caribbean islands and it's like doesn't even get onto the headlines half the time so i'm looking forward to this
1: like you're looking forward to my 30 second recap because it's going to be so beautiful and artful
0: and I believe it is your turn to go first. It is. This is a short chapter. So, you know, I have high expectations. Here we go. Three, two, one.
1: Harry wakes up and his scar hurts. And he's like, oh, no, the last time my scar hurt, Voldemort was near. What do I do? And then you get all this narrative scene setting of like, do you remember who Harry Potter was? Have you? Is this <laughs> the first of the books that you're reading? Don't worry. You haven't wasted your money. And so they do all that. And then Harry is trying to... I'm <laughs> interrupting
0: the 30-second recap. This is rule-breaking... The Harry (laughs) Potter and the Sacred Text. We do not think about authorial (laughs) intention.
1: (laughs) I acknowledge that I broke a rule, red card.
0: Okay, Okay. so you've got 13 seconds and 17 milliseconds to go. Go.
1: And so Harry decides to write a letter to Sirius being like, help, I don't know why my scar hurt. He also is like, oh, I wish, I sure wish Ron would actually invite me to the Quidditch World Cup and uh, Hedwig will find Sirius.
0: You brought it back. Round I, of applause.
1: I think I did well the whole time. Sometimes you just have to take a hit. You know? It's fine. You got to, like, bite the shoulder of your opponent and then be like, put me in the penalty box. It was worth it. You deserved it. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. On your mark. Get set. Go. Go.
0: So this chapter is all about Harry kind of looking for points of connection. And he's like, well, the, the Dursleys would never, you know, that's never going to be placed, even though I can hear Dudley snoring through the room. And Hermione would say this, and Ron would say that. And what is up with Ron? Why hasn't he invited him yet? Um, and then he's like, oh, I wish I had a family member. Wait, I do! His name is Sirius, but he's an escaped like convict, but not really guilty. And so he writes a letter. And even in the letter, he's still withholding that connection. So it's a beautiful chapter. The Scar. Chapter
1: I just love when you pronounce R's with your American accent.
0: The scar. (laughs) Makes me think of Lion King. (laughs) Vanessa, where do you want to start on this theme of destruction?
1: So I want to start with the title of the chapter. Ooh. Because, I mean, a scar is a sign of some sort of destruction. It's Mm. a sign that you were injured at some point. And I'm just interested in thinking about the scar as a physical location of this original sin that the entire series sort of like goes out from, which is the murder of Harry's parents and the attempt on his life. I feel like what we see in this chapter and the fact that it's called The Scar is that even when something heals over and even when it's been 13 years, destruction is never totally healed. You can reset a bone, but it heals Differently, any attempt to heal is going to be imperfect. And basically, I think that this chapter demonstrates that destruction can never be rectified and that we just live in a broken world in which we try to put good deeds in conversation with the destruction, but that you can never entirely heal destruction.
0: Ooh, that's it's heavy. And I'm also not sure if I completely agree, because I think I absolutely understand that destruction will always change us. But what I'm hesitant about saying is that it always leaves us weaker or that it leaves us broken in some way. You know, I think there are so many amazing examples where actually it gives us a new insight or it gives us a new understanding. And, you know, there's this great phrase in divinity school where we're supposed to preach from our scars and not our wounds. And I think Like a scar can give you a story or an experience of transformation or an experience of healing, which actually allows us to go out into the world again, more hopeful in a way. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. One of my favorite narrative versions of that is in the fantastic film Rookie of the Year, in which he breaks his arm and it gets reset in a way that gives him the most powerful pitching arm in Major League Baseball, even though he's only 12 years old. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's not based on a real story. <laughs> no,
1: it's okay. a Disney movie. Okay. I
0: don't know how baseball works. So I was like, is that possible?
1: <laughs> but I feel like it is a really good metaphor for that of right. like, sometimes things that have destroyed us can also make us stronger.
0: Which is true with Harry, right? Like, no doubt it was completely wrong and tragic that all of these things happened to him. And you know, he is the boy who lived and is therefore able to become this leader that ultimately destroys Voldemort forever.
1: Yeah. But also he's like an orphan who has no one to talk to in the middle of the night when he has a nightmare. Yeah. And I just don't think we spend enough time talking about how much that sucks.
0: No, I think that's totally true. That's what's so tragic about this chapter. You know, it you see here that All the work that we've done over the last three books of building these friendships, of building the relationships at Hogwarts, still mean very, very little when it comes to waking up in the middle of the night with a nightmare and wanting to tell someone about it. He shuts down his own relationships before he can even do it. And then even when he thinks of Sirius, who, by the way, is like far away and pretty unreachable except through like a cockatiel messenger – He's still limiting his own experience, and he's trying not to say that he's frightened, and he's 14.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, we see these little signifiers that things have changed. Like, there are birthday cards on the wall, whereas, like, in Book 2, it's the worst birthday, right? Or in Book 1, he's, like, completely alone in his birthday. Do I even have a birthday? Right. So we see that there has been progress made. And the other progress that we see, to your point, is that— Even though he can't reach Ron and Hermione, he's able to play what they would say in his mind. So he's able to carry them with him. And so, yes, like people can grow out of these destructions and still build beautiful and lasting relationships, beautiful lasting relationships that, like, are at the heart of revolution, right? Like incredibly important political, social, and like relational things come out of it. But at the end of the day, I just think I want to say again that like this is a 14-year-old boy who bears the physical scar of the fact that he can't just like go down the hall and whisper to his mom, I had a nightmare and I have his mom say, go back to bed, you're 14, you have to learn how to self-soothe.
0: And I think this is a theological point. And this, this comes up between us a lot because I think what I admire about your theological perspective is that you want to unflinchingly look... At pain and suffering and to stay with it and not to move past it too easily and try to find a meaning in the suffering and and just be with it. And I think my impulse is to like scan from the place of suffering to the horizon and the promise of tomorrow. And I think what's beautiful is that they're both true.
1: They're both true. And I think it's what makes our friendship so strong, right? Like I feel like that does come to bear in our friendship. Like, you'll come to me sad about something and already trying to put a positive spin on it. And you're like,
0: no, it's just crappy. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And I feel like you can come to me and I can be like, we can just be sad about this. Like, it's okay. We can just, like, go on a walk and complain. Right. And if I'm sulking, you can say to me, like, "Okay, now, like, what do we do about this? And I think that those two theologies need to come together. and I. I think that this is the chapter where we are being invited to sit with the injustice of it. That's why I want to talk about it here. You know, we're reading this through the theme of destruction, which is already an invitation, but I think the invitation is in the text. We are being shown yet again that yes, there's progress in Harry's life. Yes, he has relationships. Yes, he knows how the magical world works more than ever, but we're told explicitly he doesn't know how Dumbledore spends his summers. He was promised an invitation from the Weasleys. We know he's going to get it, but right now he's in this place where he's like, I wish it would Come already,
0: right? And he's hiding things beneath the floorboards, right? It's still secretive. It's hidden. It's private. Like there's that complete isolation of his experience of destruction. Yeah. You know? Something that really made me sad in this chapter was that the way that he's been treated by the Dursleys throughout his years of youth, I think, so shape how he experiences other people. You know, the text tells us that the idea of going to the Dursleys when they awoke and telling them about his scar hurting him was laughable. Right? It's not even an idea to entertain, like it's just absurd. And I think that's directly connected to his unwillingness to write to Dumbledore. You know, he imagines the letter that he would write. Dear Professor Dumbledore, sorry to bother you, but my scar hurt this morning. Yours sincerely. The fact that it's laughable to connect Vulnerably with the does these means it's laughable to connect with just about anyone,
1: which is strategically incorrect. Like Dumbledore would exactly. do things right; he would maybe put out the search for Bertha Jorkins sooner. Like if again this original sin wasn't done to him, on his heart wouldn't be the fact that like sharing is laughable, and different strategies could be put in place to look for Bertha Jorkin sooner, and maybe Voldemort wouldn't have been reembodied.
0: Yeah, and I think that. This is where we see that, okay, his physical scar has healed, but that the psychological scars are still influencing his actions throughout the books, you know? And who's to say if that healing is ever really complete? I I don't know. One thing that did strike me reading through the theme of destruction was the conversation we'd had with Sejal at the end of Series 3, where she made this really interesting comparison between Harry and Krishna. And it made me think... From what I know of the Hindu tradition, right, there's this really intense and powerful and beautiful idea that God can also be a destroyer in the persona of Shiva. And so there can be something holy about destruction because it makes way for rejuvenation. And But it's painful to think about that because destruction means loss and suffering.
1: Well, I love that, especially, I mean, if something has already been destroyed, I think that sometimes you need further destruction in order to interrupt the destruction, right? We often think of social justice as like destroying current norms. Yesterday, you called me and I picked up the phone and you said, how is destroying the patriarchy going today, which is my favorite way of people saying hello to me now.
0: Well, and I even think that physically embodied in Harry's body is the scar and the shape of lightning. And, you know, I just think of that lightning metaphor of power, electricity, fire, those things can all be incredibly fruitful and generative but also this destructive kind of negative side so that i don't know i think there's this really interesting idea of destruction or the power to destroy the power to create are intrinsically linked together
1: oh absolutely in chinese art it's always a metaphor of water which i think is so beautiful right like water can flood it can destroy it's like the only thing that can really cut through a mountain right it's amazing water can cut through mountains but we need it to bathe and to hydrate and The forces that we need the most are also the forces that can destroy us. And so there's absolutely this, like, symbiotic relationship between survival and regeneration and destruction. Casper, where else do you see destruction in this chapter?
0: This is a silly thing, but... Dudley's computer game that he kind of gets obsessed about is called Mega Mutilation Part Three.
1: I really preferred Part Two. I I think Part Three like went off the deep end with some of the animation. I was like, okay, guys.
0: (laughs) But I I think it points to this kind of culture of glamorizing destruction a little bit. And, you know, I don't want to get on like an anti-video games rant because I think Actually, it can be a very social thing, can be a very enlightening thing. It can also be a numbing thing, right, just as TV or food or whatever. But there is something in the play acting of violence, whether that's in a computer game or as, like, seven-year-olds kind of, you know, destroying your sister's playhouse or whatever it is. But there is something in that idea of, like, as you're growing up, wanting to explore one's capacity to destroy What does it say about me if I can destroy what you have, right? I I think it's an exploration of power. And it's really an edge that often you cross before you realize where the edge is as you're maturing and growing.
1: That's really interesting with trying to understand our own abilities to – grow and create things and to destroy them. It's something that we play with, right? I mean, even just now, like Ariana got me a plant as a housewarming present. And I've been amazed at my ability to keep this plant alive. And somebody recently came over and was like, this plant is growing. These are all new leaves. And I was so proud of myself for my ability to like help something to thrive. Whereas I feel like destroying a garden. Also, you like learn about yourself. You're like, oh, I can control whether or not this thing thrives or not.
0: It's fascinating that you bring up plants. Actually, I've had some amazing stories of alternative health clinics working with people who are really in struggling moments in their lives and helping them be responsible for baking or for looking after a plant, kind of tending to the nurture and growth and well-being of something else as a way that helps them see what's possible in their own lives. And that makes so much sense to me because I think it communicates value and worth and transformation. And especially like what better imagery for all of this is there than the seasons? You know, the idea of death and destruction, autumn and winter, which then below the ground where nothing is visible, suddenly these new signs of lifestyle growing and you end up with this rich, beautiful garden of color and taste and joy. And that's a gift that happens every year.
1: Well, and, you know, my beloved ex got me my dog, Rory. And a huge part of the motivation for that was that I, as I've talked about on the podcast before, have depression. And so on the days that I'm depressed, it's like literally hard for me to get out of bed. And that makes me feel worse about myself that I've spent a whole day in bed. And he knew it's like, well, if there's a puppy, you'll have to get out of bed three times a day. And that way on bad days still, the only thing I will do on those days is walk the dog. But it's such a positive thing to feel like at least today I can say that I took care of this dog. And it's just an incredibly meaningful thing in times of distress to feel like, okay, well, I am still responsible for this thing. And I am still capable of taking care of it. Mm. I know.
0: Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are continuing with Lectio Divina. And I want to invite you to pick our random sentence.
1: Okay. Our sentence is, in any case, Harry didn't like the idea of the whole Weasley family knowing that he, Harry, was getting jumpy about a few moments' pain.
0: Ooh. Can we have it one more time?
1: In any case, Harry didn't like the idea of the whole Weasley family knowing that he, Harry, was getting jumpy about a few moments' pain.
0: So what's going on there at the first level, narratively? Where, where are we in the story
1: Harry is thinking about whether or not he should write to the Weasleys and get advice about his scar. Specifically, he's like, oh, if I were to write to Ron, Ron would ask Mr. Weasley. And he's like, I don't want the Weasleys to think that I'm getting anxious about just like my scar hurting for a minute. So he's self-censoring.
0: So moving to our second level, starting to think allegorically, are there words or stories or images that stand out for us from this sentence? (laughs)
1: <laughs> so the Jew in the room was reminded of Jesus and this feeling of like martyrdom, that, like it's your responsibility to just like withstand pain, even when it's completely unjust pain or like pain that should be sort of reported. You know, athletes do that a lot. There's a lot of like underreporting of concussions amongst hockey players and football players. It's just making me think of the times that people justify that like it's just their job to endure pain. What about you, Casper?
0: You know what it's making me think of? Actually, last week's chapter where we saw Frank kind of marginalized by the whole community of the village that he lived in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Harry's stress on thinking that the whole Weasley family would know is different from him just writing to Ron. Like, if it was just Ron, would he feel differently about it? But because he knows Ron will share the information with Arthur and that the twins will find out and one thing leads to another and suddenly the whole Weasley family knows. So I I think there's an interesting connection here around confidentiality and just the difference of sharing something intimate with a trusted individual and feeling like the whole world knows your vulnerabilities.
1: I also love that your allegory was to another Harry Potter thing. Intertextual allegorical analysis. The other thing that it made me think of in terms of allegory is self-censoring our thoughts. It's Harry didn't like the idea of the whole Weasley family knowing. It's when you, like, see a thought happening and you try to stop it. And that reminds me of the way that homosexuality was thought of as, like, a psychological disorder that you could just, like, retrain your thoughts to, like, not have gay thoughts. How we shame ourselves with the help of society teaching us how to shame ourselves and can really, like, self-harm mentally in that way, tell ourselves really negative stories.
0: Before we think about stage three, let me just read the text again. Harry didn't like the idea of the whole Weasley family knowing that he, Harry, was getting jumpy about a few moments' pain. And in stage three, we want to be thinking about our own experience, like, what does this remind us of in our own lives? And the thing that strikes me is that sometimes imagining what is going to happen is so much worse than the real thing. And I think... Perhaps that's true here for Harry. Like he's imagining that the whole Weasley family is going to know about his experience and that they'll judge him or think less of him or or laugh at him. And, you know, the times when Harry shares things that are really difficult with the Weasleys, all he seems to receive is love and care. And, you know, there might be some kind of familial jockeying and joke-making, but it's always done with the spirit of love. And for me, it's kind of, you know, I've imagined that... A certain, you know, it might be something simple like, oh, a presentation's going to go really badly and actually everyone in the room wants you to succeed or sometimes it's not as bad as we think it's going to be. How about you?
1: I feel for Harry in that, you know, I feel like I have a certain persona with aunts and uncles of like being this together person at Harvard and wanting to protect that persona, even though it's like not one I've done anything to cultivate. It's like not one that I see myself as, but I do like this mental jumping jacks of like trying to understand how somebody else might perceive me and then Mm. performing that for them. Our students, right? Like they see us as the grown up. And so I'm like, okay, I have to like seem like a together grown up. And
0: Right. And risking information that would change that picture might invalidate the whole relationship
1: right and it's probably not true it would probably just complicate the relationship and strengthen it if my student saw me as something other than like an old (laughs) like an old lady who lives in the dorms that'd probably be really good for our relationship but like you know whenever i come home sort of past 11 o'clock i'm almost embarrassed to run into them and tell them like yeah i was out at a bar with friends i don't want them to see me as someone is like a multifaceted person who like right. goes out and has fun in the world.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So the final stage, stage four, is really thinking about what's the message or a piece of wisdom that we might have found in this text. In any case, Harry didn't like the idea of the whole Weasley family knowing that he, Harry, was getting jumpy about a few moments pain
1: I feel like what I feel called to do is, like, ask for discretion from people when I need it. This could all be solved if Harry just, like, said to Ron, I know you might want to ask your dad, but can you keep this between us? Just what do you think? And I think, yeah, we catastrophize, like, oh, if I tell this person this, then blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you can just ask for what you need and you can say, actually, I would prefer that you not talk about this with anyone And most of the times when you tell people how you want them to show their love for you, they want to do that. So
0: I had the same reaction, totally the same reaction, but from a different perspective, which is when people share something with me, nearly always I feel like I have permission to share it with my husband. But that might not always be the case. And I feel like actually I might need to ask that question sometimes, like, is this something you're comfortable with me sharing with him so, yeah, I think that confidentiality piece and knowing where the boundary of that information is, is so helpful. That's really something I'm taking away. This week's voicemail is from Olga.
2: Hi Vanessa and Kasper. My name is Olga and I'm calling you from St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, sorry for my accent or mistakes in grammar and vocabulary. English is not my mother tongue. I just finished listening chapter two, book three, through the theme of family and this theme reflected me so deeply so i decided to record this voicemail it's a common thing in russia to be raised um, an incomplete family and i was raised only by my mother and her parents because my father left us when i was just one year old he moved to another city found new family and we didn't hear anything from him for several years Then he started visiting us from time to time and he was like my father for a weekend. Of course, there is a huge difference between being a biological father and visiting your child from time to time and being a parent and be with you every day. And as I became older, I realized that my father was a jerk because he left a young mother with a little child on her hand and I still don't understand how any person can do this. And my reaction was anger, but I didn't have enough courage to say about it, so I decided just to avoid his company. And that's what I'm still doing. Listening to your podcast, I realized that a similar thing happened with Harry, when he realized that his father was a jerk, in book 5. And his instant reaction was I'm not like my father, and I don't want to be a part of the Potter family anymore. And I don't think that Harry actually get over it. Also, in in podcast of this chapter, Vanessa says about parents who want to be more than a parent to their child too soon. I also took it very personally because during the last few years, I started noticing that my father is looking for the emotional response from me as from daughter. But I can't, can't give it to him because he never gives me the same. And I thought that some parents want to be a parent too late, and that's really sad. But I'm still glad that your podcast makes me think and feel about this not easy situation for me, and I hope that I will have courage to finally handle it. So thank you. Keep the podcast strong. Bye.
1: Olga, your voicemail just means so much to us. I feel like it's such vulnerable reflection and well, we greatly appreciate you giving the podcast any credit for that. I really just feel like that speaks to you and how open-hearted and thoughtful you are. And so thank you for sharing that gift with us.
0: And Olga, this gives me an excuse to say, <laughs> And we're so glad you're listening. Thank you. It's time to bless someone from this chapter. Vanessa, who are you offering your blessing to?
1: I'm going to bless our darling Hermione. She has been such a pillar of, like, reason and wisdom in Harry's life that even when she is a figment of his imagination, she gives good advice. So Harry is imagining what Hermione would say if he were to write to her and say, like, my scar hurt. And Hermione's imagined advice is, like, in my opinion, the perfect advice. It is go to an authority figure, and until you hear back from the authority figure— do your research and look it up in a book. I just think that Hermione has proven herself to be such a brilliant friend that even when she's inaccessible, she's like there for him. Oh, I love her. Casper, who would you like to bless this week?
0: My blessing is for Harry because he has to hear Dudley's snoring. <laughs> and let me tell you, I can love people to the end of the earth until they are snoring next to you. Everything changes. I remember I was on a trip with my family and my dad and one of his college friends and I was sharing a room because we only had two rooms. All the girls were in one room and all the boys were in the other room. And like both my dad and this friend of his were snoring so loudly that I considered putting a pillow on their faces and not letting go.
1: (laughs) My little brother.
0: I I just couldn't take it anymore. And so the fact that Harry is spending a summer with this coming through a wall, I mean, no wonder he's like not in his (laughs) right mind. A blessing on anyone who has to live with heavy snoring. (laughs) And I know it's not intentional from the snorers, but that doesn't matter.
1: That doesn't make it less annoying.
0: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear a two-minute voicemail, which you can send to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com.
1: Next week we will be reading Chapter 3, The Invitation Through the Theme of Awareness. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper kyle and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows at Panoply.fm.
0: This week's voicemail was from Olga. Our social media manager is Hashi Hetegey. Thanks to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll see you all next week. Destroying your sister's playhouse or whatever it is. Like, what? what is it about...
1: That felt like a specific example. uh -uh.
0: It's not that they had dolls, but I definitely locked them in the playroom (laughs) with the au pair. Um, (laughs) She couldn't get out.
1: (laughs) Opening story!
0: I also made her like nettle soup. Like, just put nettles in water and was like, here. (laughs) Drink this, so you'll be poisoned. Um...